In this podcast, Dr. Leonard A. Adler discusses how to apply DSM-IV-TR diagnostic criteria for ADHD across the lifespan and how to formulate treatment goals across different domains of life. He also reviews tools for assessing ADHD and presents a six-item questionnaire developed by the World Health Organization that can be used as a quick screener to detect the need for further evaluation for ADHD. I'm Dr. Leonard Adler, a professor of psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry at the NYU School of Medicine, and today we'll be talking about assessing patient needs and formulating treatment goals across domains of life. In terms of adult ADHD, I think it's always good to start off with a quote from um, an expert in the field, and Paul Wender is probably the father of adult ADHD. He brought forward the concept that ADHD could persist into adulthood, and Paul says that ADHD is probably the most common chronic undiagnosed psychiatric disorder in adults. It's characterized by inattention, distractibility, restlessness, labile mood, quick temper, overactivity, disorganization, and impulsivity. He says it's always preceded by a childhood diagnosis, and actually, according to DSM-IV, it's always preceded by a significant onset of symptoms in childhood, a disorder that's rarely inquired about and usually overlooked. So in the talk today, we're going to recognize the symptoms and the criteria for diagnosing and assessing ADHD and compare treatment options for children, adolescents, and adults with ADHD, looking at specific domains in their life and across the lifespan. ADHD has been called a number of different things, and I wanted to review some of the history and the epidemiology of the disorder. The first clinical descriptions of children with ADHD were done by a pediatrician, George Still, in 1902. So ADHD has been around uh, for a very long time. The term minimal brain damage was coined in the 1930s. The concept of um, calling it ADHD came in in 1980 in DSM-3, not until DSM-3R, could we call it attention deficit hyperactivity disorder with a full presentation of symptoms in adults. Another thing to note is that medications have been used uh, since Bradley's report of the use of amphetamine in 1937 to treat ADHD. ADHD is a very common disorder affecting somewhere between 6 to 9% of school-aged children and 4.4% of the U.S. adult population is defined by the National Comorbidity Survey. There are three subtypes. The combined subtype is more common, both for children and adults. Then there are the inattentive and the primarily hyperactive impulsive subtypes. Hyperactive impulsive symptoms tend to diminish as we go across the lifespan and head into adulthood, and that's an important thing to remember as we talk about domains through life. And in fact, the hyperactive impulsive subset accounts for less than 5% of the patients in adulthood. The gender split is uh, much more even in adulthood as uh, females tend to have a higher loading of the inattentive symptoms, leading them to present more often in adulthood. So it's about 2 to 1, 4 to 1 in childhood, male to female, and close to 1 to 1 in adulthood. Probably about 50 to 60% of patients who are diagnosed in childhood continue to have significant symptoms in adulthood. That means not everyone, but many individuals. And these prevalence rates are very similar across cultures, East, West, developed, and undeveloped. There are four major criteria under DSM-IV to have a diagnosis of adult ADHD. These include significant symptoms, and we'll talk about those in a moment, and those must be present for at least six months, a childhood onset of significant symptoms before the age of seven, impairment in the symptoms in two domains, school or work, social settings, or at home, and then being sure that the symptoms are from ADHD and not another mental health disorder. 
symptoms of ADHD are broken out into two domains, and factor analyses have supported this. These include the inattentive symptoms, which include carelessness, difficulty sustaining attention, easy distraction, failure to finish things, not listening, forgetfulness, although adults tend to misplace things rather than forget things or lose them, and the hyperactive impulsive symptoms, which tend to morph over the course of time, as do the inattentive symptoms, but the frank hyperactivity of childhood tends to become much more a sense of internal restlessness, fidgetiness, talking out of turn, interrupting others, and impatience. And really, the symptoms do change most notably, as we talked about, regarding the uh, change in the sense of frank hyperactivity becoming a sense of internal restlessness. The interrupting and intruding can become impatience and trouble waiting, and frank losing things may become misplacing things. A study by Milstein that looked at symptom counts of uh, ADHD symptoms, inattentive and hyperactive impulsive, and 149 consecutive patients presenting to an ADHD program. And what they found were that the inattentive symptoms were twice as common as the hyperactive impulsive in adults. The symptoms of ADHD affect a variety of different domains of impairment. A survey by uh, Biederman looked at 500 adults with ADHD and 501 without, and the adults with ADHD showed significant impairments in multiple domains in a variety of different areas that include educational impairments, when you look at rates of graduating college or higher level education, significantly higher for no ADHD. Income levels, lower income, significantly higher for ADHD, and that's a very meaningful thing, the chance of earning less than $25,000. Looking at educational impairment and how they did their schoolwork, looking at those who attended high school, the ability for them to concentrate on their schoolwork, much higher for the individuals with ADHD um, getting bored easily unable to pay attention, much higher for the ADHD cohort, and trouble following instructions from their teachers, also much higher, so educational domains of impairment. Looking at relationship problems and not fitting in with their peers, much higher in the ADHD cohort, getting along with your teachers, much higher in the non-ADHD cohort, and good relationships with your parents, much better in the non-ADHD cohort. So again, social um, impairment domains uh, for ADHD. Adult ADHD is most likely not diagnosed and treated, and therefore there are other domains. There's criminality and that arrests are twice as common in individuals with ADHD. There are substantial marital impairments in that domain and that they're much more likely, twice as likely to be divorced, more likely to be divorced and separated. Data from the Milwaukee Young Adult Survey by Russ Barkley shows they're four times more likely to contract a sexually transmitted disease. It's postulated due to the impulsivity and not protecting themselves during uh, sexual intercourse. They're also much more likely to smoke tobacco and being 78% more likely to be addicted, and quit rates are much lower in individuals with ADHD. So here again, we see a public health domain and a medical domain that has serious consequences for an adult with ADHD. And in terms of employment data, they're also three times more likely to be currently unemployed and to have changed their jobs much more often. Another domain of impairment for adults with ADHD relates to driving. Uh, this is data from Russ Barkley, again, looking at traffic violations, speeding violations, drunk driving, license suspension, and accidents, all of which are higher in adults with ADHD as compared to controls. And this is a substantial domain in terms of real-life implications of having untreated adult ADHD and the impairments that result. ADHD itself is under-recognized by primary care physicians. This is data from a primary care survey uh, that we performed several years ago. It's been published in primary psychiatry recently. 
400 primary care physicians who actually treated a lot of mental health disorders, and we surveyed them regarding their knowledge of ADHD diagnoses, their ability to uh, comfort in treating the diagnosis. And these primary care physicians felt themselves to be about half as knowledgeable and comfortable in treating ADHD as compared to generalized anxiety disorder and depression. In terms of receiving instruction, not at all or uh, not very thorough, ADHD is at about 65% and depression is about 15%. PCPs in this survey, about two in three of them referred out their ADHD patients, whereas less than 5% of the time they referred out anxiety and depression. And in part, that's due to their discomfort and lack of training in the disorder, but also um, their concerns about using psychostimulants. In terms of different domains and how we assess these symptoms and make diagnoses for, for um, individuals with ADHD, rating scales are, can be quite helpful. They're broken down to those that are diagnostic instruments and those that are symptom assessment instruments. Symptom assessment instruments can be clinician-administered, self-administered from a significant other, be that um, for a child, a parent, or a teacher. And they can also be frequency, meaning how often, versus severity-based, meaning how significant the symptoms are. In terms of child and adolescent diagnostic scales, I'm going to go through a couple of them. These are not exclusive, and there are many other scales, but commonly employed scales include the ADHD module out of the KSADS, the Schedule for Affective Disorder and Schizophrenia, which has uh, specific childhood symptoms and then uh, prompts and probes for childhood symptomatology to flesh out the breadth of symptoms. Keith Connors has a scale that Kated, there's a Brown scale, there's also the Child Behavior Checklist, and there's a Vanderbilt Diagnostic Scale. The DSM-4 checklist, which would be the listing of DSM-4 symptoms, the ADHD-RS, which is very similar to that. Keith Connors has a variety of scales, some of which are self, some of which are parent, some of which are teacher report, also with the SNAP scale. All of these are well-validated and uh, scales that are used in children and adolescents. Adult diagnostic instruments include the CATED, the Connors Adult ADHD Diagnostic Interview, uh, which has a symptom-by-symptom -symptom assessment in childhood and adulthood of DSM-4 symptoms, assessing impairment, being certain that the symptoms are from ADHD and not in the mental health disorder, and going ahead and having you make a diagnosis of ADHD with subtyping. There's a Barclay Current Symptoms Diagnostic Scale. There's a Brown Diagnostic Scale. And the ACDS is the Adult ADHD Clinician Diagnostic Scale using the, the ADHD module out of the KSADS along with an adult symptom module that uses similar adult-specific prompts and probes, then which are married into these symptoms. And again, um, having the clinician make a diagnosis of adult ADHD, yes or no, with subtyping. Symptom assessment scales include the BADS, which um, is a frequency-based scale. It's the Brown scale. Connor scales come in self and other reports. The uh, RAD scale is a scale developed by Fred Reimer and Paul Wender. It includes modules for mood regulation. The ADHDRS, same scale as mentioned in childhood, Barclays current symptoms. And a self-report scale, which is the ASRS version 1.1 symptom checklist, which is developed for the World Health Organization and also comes in a screener form, but the full 18 symptoms are there in a symptom checklist, frequency-based, self-report. And then the AISRS, which is the adult investigator symptom report scale, which involves a clinician-based scale with adult symptom presentation and uh, adult prompts and probes, as mentioned in the ACDS previously, used in this scale, too, to flesh out the breadth of symptoms, and it's a severity-based scale. 
in terms of assessing domains of impairment, one thing that does come up is that we look for real-world manifestations of these symptoms, and one way that that's assessed is in model classrooms or model workplaces, and there are some differences in terms of how this is measured for children and adults. One way that this is done for children is that ADHD symptoms are assessed in a model classroom where children are having to do math problems on a repetitive basis and then they assess the number correct and how many problems are answered as a measure of symptoms and also symptoms throughout the day and potentially medication response. For adults, a similar kind of morphed simulation has been done that looks for workplace simulation. These measures are uh, coming more now to the forefront and are now being used to measure ADHD symptoms in adults throughout the day. However, it's not just as simple as giving the math problems because we know that adults can marshal themselves and will try to do some of these more boring tasks in a repetitive way, and it has to include things that are very real world in terms of what an adult would encounter in the workplace. Uh, one thing that can be helpful is the ASRS version 1.1 screener in assessing adult symptoms. It's a six-question subset of the 18-item scale that's the most predictive of the diagnosis, but it is not diagnostic in and of itself. Individuals who screen positive, meaning that they have at least four of the six symptoms significantly, are at risk for ADHD and have between a 53 and 94% chance of going on to have adult ADHD when they get a full diagnosis. These six items were selected on psychometric factor analyses and diagnostic interviews of patients with and without ADHD in the National Comorbidity Survey Replication Sample. Items that are scored significant at the frequency-based scale are at sometimes or often four of the items in the screener are inattentive and two are hyperactive and impulsive. Examples of an inattentive symptom are how often do you have trouble wrapping up the fine details of a project once the challenging parts have been done, and a hyperactive impulsive symptom. One is how often do you feel overly active and compelled to do things like you were driven by a motor. Neuropsychological testing does come up. It's another domain of measuring ADHD symptoms in childhood and adulthood. It's important to remember that testing is generally for educational purposes and in and of itself is not diagnostic, specifically and especially for adults. Because it's educational in purposes, generally it's much more common in children. The diagnosis of adult ADHD remains a clinical one. However, several neuropsychological tests do have abnormalities in ADHD in childhood and adulthood. But again, you cannot make the diagnosis based on testing alone. Recent chart review on our adult ADHD program found that only about 15% were tested. And one of the reasons we don't use the t testing to make the diagnosis in adults is that a study by Biederman et al. found that only about 30% of adults had formal executive function deficits as defined by greater than or equal to two abnormalities on neuropsychological testing. So if you just use testing as, to make your uh, diagnosis, you would miss 70% of the cases. In terms of pharmacotherapy and domains of treatment, they break out into those which are the stimulants, which are the methylphenidate compounds, short and long-acting, and amphetamine-based compounds, which are short and long-acting. All approved stimulant medications for adults happen to be the sustained-release XR preparations, and those include in the methylphenidate uh, domain, Concerta, which is Oros methylphenidate, sustained-release with a barrier preparation, methylphenidate, Dexmethylphenidate XR, Focalin XR, which is the active isomer in short and long-acting beads. In the amphetamines, 4-salt, mixed amphetamine salt preparation XR, Adderall XR. And Lysdex amphetamine, a prodrug, which is a lysine, an amino acid bound to dextroamphetamine. And again, these are all sustained release. In childhood, you will see approval for the shorter-acting preparations.
The non-stimulants that are approved in adults and children include atomoxetine, it's a norepinephrine selective reuptake inhibitor, and in children alone, guanfacine XR. So general principles when trying to treat individuals with ADHD, it's generally better for, certainly for adults, to use a longer acting preparation and probably for adolescents in addition where you try to get some treatment throughout the day. And if you're concerned in young adults about diversion, it seems that the longer acting preparations may be less likely to be diverted. Uh, you really want to individualize the treatment response. You want to look at prior responses or family responses. Choosing a non-stimulant is appropriate when uh, substance abuse is active or significant tics are present, possibly when there's a lot of anxiety present. And because the effect size of non-stimulants may be less than that of stimulants, when symptoms are not robustly severe because the magnitude of response may be somewhat less with non-stimulants. In terms of choosing stimulants, there is a more rapid onset of effect, and as mentioned, the effect size is more robust. Generally, it's important to start with the lowest dose possible and titrate based on side effects and clinical response, remembering that non-stimulants can take several weeks to have their full clinical effect. It's important to monitor blood pressure and pulse regularly, and in fact, there have been guidelines that have come out regarding a screening um, individuals who are going to be taking psychostimulants for a family history of, of earlier sudden cardiac death, also whether a screening cardiogram is, is necessary, and also their individual history of syncope and, and heart murmur. It's also very important to screen athletes who perform at a high level of exertion. You want to ask them in general to decrease caffeine, and always important to ask about nutritional supplements. ADHD prescriptions are increasing, and the long-acting prescriptions are increasing over the more recent time, although there is still a substantial amount of short-acting medication being written. And in fact, when you look at use of ADHD medications by age, what you tend to see here is looking at the immediate release a little bit less coming along in adults between 2000 and 2005. Psychosocial treatments can be quite important for both children and adults. These include cognitive behavioral therapy. Generally, psychosocial interventions are more prominent for children and adolescents than they are for adults. Some environmental modifications can be quite helpful regarding structuring the environment, identifying and avoiding distracting environments, organizing your physical space, establishing centers, i.e. for bills and messages, so these are things that are done in one place. Communication skills for implementing, structuring time, creating work interest, and using external aids, electronic calendars, day planners, notepads, checklists, and reminders. An earlier study by Steve Safran looked at the efficacy of CBT in adults with ADHD that were partially responsive to medication. He compared ongoing medication versus CBT, and there were three modules of the CBT, and the medication was continued in both groups. The combination group had less reported depression and anxiety, lower ADHD scores, and significantly more likely to be full responders, and in fact, this was uh, replicated in this more recent study.